Why don't we stand and read 1 Peter, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your dormant must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For this, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without fear, sorry, without being frightened by any fear. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to our, our third sermon here uh, in the area of submission. We looked at government. Uh, we're now looking at uh, we looked at uh, workplace with uh, employees and masters, and now here we are uh, within the marriage as we look at the role of wives uh, today, and and uh, and ultimately one more sermon on the role for a husband later on in verse seven. But we uh, come to you, God, with. Uh, with open hearts to learn from you and just like the other areas with uh, government and work and when it was sometimes sort of difficult to hear certain truths and accept them just because of frustrations and wanting our rights met uh, this may be another sermon where that might be an issue and uh, we pray God that uh, just like we've worked up through everything else that you'd help us work through this one as well and you set up this uh, role in these functions for our good we have to remember that this is for our good, not for not because you're trying to be chauvinistic in any type of way. This is for our good because you understand how families put together. So we look forward to our time together, and just help me to be sensitive and gentle, and but still truthful, and guide me uh, with your spirit to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome back to another sermon from the great letter of First Peter. So as we just talked about in the prayer and also in our reading, it's obvious what the topic is today. It's the third area of submission. It's the area of uh, uh, a wife's submission to her husband. Now the timing of this is interesting because a year ago in September on the houseboat, I spoke about the role of a husband. And uh, it's almost, almost to the date. Uh, a couple weeks away kind of thing that we're back now looking at the role of a wife so it's been a year coming uh, but just like we said there was much to say about uh, God's ideal for the husband in terms of the roles within marriage and the treatment of his wife the same true as the wife towards her husband and I want to just give one little sort of caveat I realize that for some of you in here today this is a, a sensitive area because Currently, uh, in your situation right now, um, you're having difficulties at home. And maybe past experiences and different things have shaped your view of, of this word and what God's asking. So I uh, come at you with sensitivity and understand that uh, uh, that's an issue for you. However, at the same time, be open to God's word and the truths contained within scripture. So let's dive in. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 1 is that Peter starts, starts off by saying, in the same way. <clears throat> now, uh, so what Peter is doing here then is reminding us to refer back to what he had just previously taught. Because it was in that same way that believing wives were to operate with their husbands. Now in verse 13 he taught all believers that it was the responsibility as Christians to submit themselves to government, even if they were secular. And in verse 18 that all Christian employees were to submit to their masters, whether they were pleasant characters or unpleasant characters. So just as submission was required of all believers within these institutions as part of honoring God with their lives, in the same way wives are to honor God by submitting to their husbands. In other words, they were to voluntarily place themselves under their husband's authority and leadership. They were to voluntarily place themselves under their husband's authority and leadership as established by God. Now I want to say on a side note, and I don't think I need to say this, but I probably should say this. Um, this is very similar to the relationship with government and work. Uh, I'll just clear this up. God is not ever telling a woman, a wife, to submit to a husband who's asking them to sin. Okay. So if he says, you know, if the husband says, "I want you to go into the 7-Eleven and steal me a chocolate bar," or I want you to like cheat on our taxes this year. You're to obey the Lord in those things. So I just want to clear that up. These aren't sin issues. These are these are like 
issues within the home of like you know preferences and and different ways of treatment but they're not when your husband asks you to sin against the lord okay so anyway i thought i should mention that just in case that's in your mind but even after saying that, I think some of you may be having a hard time hearing this, and it's just a little uncomfortable, and it'll be based on your past experiences at home, or maybe your current experiences now, and due to the negative connotation that the word submission has in our society. I mean, submission in our society means that you're weak, and it means that you're inferior, right? But the Bible's definition of submission and the reasons for it within marriage are different than the world's. They're different. Now here's a, I'll just give you a couple reasons. First, Peter's reasons for a wife's submission has nothing to do with her being inferior to her husband in any way morally, intellectually, or even spiritually. Within Christianity, submission to authority is often consistent with equality and importance, dignity and honor. Jesus, for example, was subject or submitted to his parents in Luke 2.51. Did you know that? He submitted to his parents. Jesus also submitted to his heavenly Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Even within our context, Jesus, or just as we discussed, how all believers are to submit to governing authorities in the workplace, right? Uh, you wouldn't say that as Christians that we are less important or less dignity or honor to our secular governments or our secular bosses, or even if we're Christian bosses. We're not less important to the Lord or in dignity, but we're told to submit to them. Furthermore, in verse 7, Peter calls the wife a fellow heir. Did you notice that? Look at verse 7. It says, uh, honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So he affirms the wife's equality with her husband in terms of her, her uh, value to Christ. So the reason for submission, though, is pretty, pretty straightforward. It's just simply because God asks you to. <laughs> he asks you to. See, marriage was God's design. It was His idea. He designed it so that both the husband and the wife had specific roles within the relationship in order for it to function properly. So yes, you're equal in terms of value, dignity, and honor, but there was, there was differences in roles to make the relationship work properly. Now, Ephesians 5.22 uh, actually says it very clearly because Paul's writing on the, basically the same idea of husbands and wives' roles. Look what he says in 522. He says, Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So this is for the Lord's sake that you do this. Now on a side note, this is why I believe Satan went after Eve in the garden. See, it's not a coincidence. He could have gone after Adam. Why didn't he go after Adam first? Why did he go after Eve? It had nothing to do with her importance to God, her dignity, her, her, intellect, her intellect, or anything like that. It was really his way of uh, basically uh, disrupting the authority that God had commanded. And you think about this. What did God say you get kicked out of heaven for? Basically usurping authority. Trying to be God. Trying to be the, the leader. And so he goes after Eve in the garden because he undermines God's authority when he goes after her. And if he can get her, he destroys the whole chain of command in God's design for marriage. And it worked. And now we have the marriage crisis that we often face and the, and the issues we have because of that day in the garden. <laughs> All right, so it's not a coincidence, I believe, that Satan went after Eve. He knew exactly what he was doing. He could have chose Adam, but he didn't. He could have chosen them both together and had a conversation simultaneously. He didn't. He went after her in isolation, and I believe this is the reason why. The second reason for submission is actually found right within our text. So the first reason is because God asks us, Ephesians 5.22, but that's not what Peter actually is, is getting at so much. He has another reason for submission in verse 1. And you'll notice that in the so that comment. He says, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your husbands so that, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by their behavior. Okay? The so that purpose is to win them to the Lord. To draw a disobedient husband closer to Christ. So the submission and the purpose for it is, is evangelistic in its nature. Now the word disobedient actually in the Greek means uncompliant or, or refuses to believe. So there's some debate among scholars uh, in the commentaries if this references to 
uh, an unbelieving husband, like just a pure out, like non-Christian husband who's flat out rejected Christ, and some of you are in relationships like that right now, or includes Christians who have embraced his patterns of sin, and some of you might be in relationships like that right now as well. The substantiation, though, within the text, I think, suggests that it's probably both. And to me, it's the even-if-any comment in verse 1. He says, subject yourself to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. The, 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 idea, um, the idea, then, is that some were obedient. So you submit yourself to obedient husbands, but even if they're disobedient, you still submit. And this makes sense to me because in verse um, 18... He says uh, the same similar thing. He says, submit yourselves not only to those who are good, but those who are unreasonable. So the, the even if suggests that there's both husbands that are maybe in a pattern of sin, and there's non-Christian husbands as well, and so there's both. And it's important, I think, to recognize that, because otherwise, if you're if in this church, if you're only married to unbelievers, then the sermon is only for you wives and not for any of you else. <laughs> Right? You can just turn your ears off and go, well, thank goodness it doesn't apply to me because I have a Christian husband. So you might as well just leave and go watch the show shine car show outside because it doesn't apply to you. But, and that's why I think that's an important observation. And it's important to work through because commentators and pastors will teach you this as only non-Christian husbands. And that's an issue I had to work through this week. So notice though how Peter exhorts a wife to win a wayward husband. How is, what's the method, what's the instrument by which you win this wayward husband? Verse 1. Even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Let me first clear up what Peter does not mean by when he says that you're to win your wife without a word. He's not telling a wife she can't speak or have any input into the relationship. In verse 7, again, uh, he, he defines a wife as being the co-heir of Christ or a fellow heir of the grace of life. So, she, again, she is valued equally as the husband to, in God's eyes. And Proverbs 19.14 tells us that a wise wife is a gift from the Lord. Well, how can you be a wise wife if you're never speaking? You have to clearly, husbands need, your, need some wisdom from you because we don't have all the answers and we actually need you to contribute in many cases because you have better solutions than we do. So a wise wife is a gift from the Lord, so clearly to be wise you have to speak. So Peter is not meaning you can't have input in the family. It also does not mean not to preach the gospel or any kind of God's truth contained in scripture. 1 Peter 1.23 reads this, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living, enduring Word of God. You're, bo- you're only become a Christian through the preaching of the Gospel. If you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, for example, at some point they're going to have to hear the Gospel. So it's not saying you can't preach the Gospel. Although if you are going to speak about the Gospel in your home with, a, with someone, you have to be careful in the way you do it. And the timing is everything. But I think what he's saying without a word, it's the manner in which a woman speaks to her husband. It's the manner in which she speaks. See, a wife's tendency is to try to motivate her husband through what I call particular verbal tactics. Okay? And we're going to discuss those tactics in a minute. I'm not just going to leave them. We're going to discuss what these look like. But what Peter is saying is this. It's through a wife's behavior and the way she treats her husband that will be the best instrument for invoking change. It's through the way she treats him and the way she conducts herself in godly behavior that will be the best instrument setting the table for change. But notice the key ingredient in this. It's it's her chaste and respectful behavior. Now, when Paul teaches about this in Ephesians 5, on the roles of men and women, he actually summarizes the wife's role in one word. In one word. He gives, eight, he gives nine verses of instruction to the male. Nine verses. And in one word summarizes what he wants a woman to do. Listen to this in 5.33. Each individual is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Paul summarizes it with one word. All you have to do is respect them. And Peter, thankfully, lays it out a little more for what this looks like. And I'll even accentuate his principles in a second. 
Now, the, the word for, for respect is the word phobos, which means fear. And when you look at it in other contexts, it just means to honor or to revere, to hold in reverence. So why respect? Why does a man, why in like, places like Ephesians, for example, it says, husbands love your wives, husbands love your wives, husbands love your wives, but wife, respect your husband. Why doesn't he say love your husband there? Because the way a man feels honored and loved is, is through the way the wife intrinsically treats him in those ways. The way that a man feels honored, sorry, the way a man feels respected, I should say, is the way, he, is the way she honors him and loves him in those ways. It's the way she treats him. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The way a man feels honored and loved is by being respected. But it's the one thing that wives intrinsically don't know how to do. And there's two reasons for this, I'd suggest. One is you're pre-wired out of the womb to be disrespectful. What do you mean you're pre-wired? Genesis 3.16. This is the curse. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that word desire in Hebrew means to long for. To long for. It can be used in the sexual connotation, like in, in Song of Solomon's, but it is also used of Cain and Abel when, when Cain wanted to kill his brother and he had this insane like, longing to get rid of him and the sin was, like, basically he says, your sin's crouching at your door. <clears throat> it, uses, it uses that word there, uh, longing. Because he says, uh, yeah, that your desire is basically to kill him, but you have to master this, this rage that was inside you that wants to get rid of your brother. Okay? So it's used in the negative context as well. So it's in, so, but we know from the context here that this desire can't be sexual. What kind of a curse is that? <laughs> right? Your, your desire, your, here's the curse, uh, guys. Uh, by the way, your husband's going to constantly want you sexually. It's like, bring it on. Like, where's the curse in that? Right? Clearly the context is in terms of position or leadership in the home. Because he says, and he will rule over you. That word rule is to govern or have dominion over. Same as Joseph in the land of Egypt. He was ruling over the land of Egypt. So he's saying this in the curse. Your desire for the position of governance or dominion in the home is going to be for your husband's position. You're going to want that, but he will ultimately have it over you. So you are pre-wired to want to be the leader, to take the position, which is ultimately disrespectful. So you don't want to be submissive by nature, you want to be dominant by nature. That's the curse. Thankfully, the cure is in places like 1 Peter and Ephesians 5, when he gives you the cure. Second reason is that women um, aren't trained as young girls. I mean, uh, in fact, I don't even mind, you can even do this if you want. Any, anybody in here as a wife, did your mom, through, your, through, through you know, basically your young years into your teenagers, ever teach you how to respect a man and give you specific instructions? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, not one. Okay, I, I kind of guessed that would be the case. Hint, by the way, not a hint, a flat out cue. Women who have young girls in this church, you know, whether you be little girls, please train them when they're through their years. <laughs> right? Please train them. I mean, in fact, it, it actually says in Titus 2.3, older women are to train younger women how to love their husbands. What? I thought it was like Bible teaching. No, you're to train them how to operate in marriage. But, but like you said, none of you have put up your hands to say that you've ever been trained. So the issue then is that when does your training start? Usually when you get married. <laughs> right? You're like all of a sudden, all the, like that beautiful man that you used to bat your eyes to, that you loved in the engagement, all of a sudden is giving you problems in the home. And you're like, how did this start? This was not like my engagement. Yeah, because uh, you guys are trying like crazy to, to basically operate without showing any of your flaws, and then you get married, and all of a sudden all this, everything comes out. And so next thing you know, um, you're like disrespectful, and he's trying to teach you how to be respectful, and it starts off in fights, and because he's bad at loving you, there's this, this big riff in the family, and you don't know how to resolve anything. And this is the cycle that we all face. So again, we often have to be trained, and the training usually comes in marriage, 
but it should have come from mom and dad in the early years, and it should come from older women in the church when you're mature. But unfortunately, those two things are lacking. So the result then is we don't know how as women to honor and respect our husbands because of the curse and because of lack of training. And when the wife feels like the marriage is spinning out of control and doesn't like what the husband is doing, she resorts to all sorts of verbal controlling tactics to try to get him back, to invoke change. Let me describe some of these tactics to you now. Nagging. These are constant reminders, constant dropping of hints, and harassing to do this and to do that. Also includes guilt trips uh, to try to get the husband to be motivated to change. Insults. Uh, this is when you name call, you like, you know, you're such an idiot, I can't believe you thought that or did that, or they call him stupid, or you make comments like, you're just never going to change. Uh, embarrassed or belittle, so making them feel inadequate. Especially, I mean, that's especially damaging in front of the kids and in public situations. Uh, close to this is sarcasm. <clears throat> that's a dig done in humor. Now, I'm not saying all sarcasm is disrespectful because, like, you know, there is some sarcasm that is quite, quite funny and, and isn't quite hurtful, but you as wives know when, that, when you actually use sarcasm to actually, actually hurt. And that's in your own conscience. You kind of know when you've crossed the line and when you know you've done it to actually hurt someone or hurt your husband. Oh. Accusations, this is like you always language. Like you're always this and you always do that and this and that and the other. Or you'll, or you'll never. You'll never this and you'll never that. Scripture tells us to assume the best before we know the worst. But as wives, there's often a tendency to mind read. We know what our husbands are thinking. And so we often just go off and make you always and you never comments. Uh, making demands and barking orders. Basically being the boss in the home. Telling him what to do. Sit down. Or uh, another one that's subtle but important. Uh, you're at your family's house for dinner and the height wife comes up to you and, and says, it's time to go. It's time to go. Uh, uh, you might not realize that, but if you're a husband and you're sitting around your family, that's kind of embarrassing and disrespectful to a man because he feels like he has no choice but to say okay because everyone's watching. Okay? You, those, are just, those, are, those are ways that we feel disrespected. Uh, second guessing and question everything he does, right? So he presents ideas, but you're hardly ever supportive. Uh, the husband's looking to buy something or plan an activity, and you're like, you're not seriously thinking about doing that, are you? Like, that just seems ridiculous. Stuff like that. Always finishing his sentences, interrupting him, cutting him off when he's speaking. So you don't like the way he's saying something, or it's, it's not accurate enough in his, in, for your liking with the, with the way he's telling the story. So again, you correct them in public, especially damaging in front of the kids and in public. Uh, tone of voice, so it's sharp and aggressive. So like, you know, um, like no, or like you figure it out, or, my, or things like this, whatever. Right, just those subtle sounds that make it obvious that you're displeased. Big one is gossip. Big one is gossip. You know, I have, I don't think, and in fact, I even have to rack my brain. I don't think I've ever in my life been with a group of men where we've talked about our wives in a negative way. I'm secular or Christian. I've never been in a social group when I was running the gym or in the church, in the houseboat, where we run our wives down over in the hot tub or anything like that. Women, I can go into coffee shop after coffee shop as I'm not even listening and I hear them talk about this and that and the other. Gossip is a killer. And here's why this is so important, especially with the family of origin and blood relatives. When you as a wife go to your family of origin, mom or dad, uncle or aunt, even if your kids are your older, and you start talking about your husband, here's what happens. Blood's thicker than water. So you're going to run your husband down and your parents or your sisters or brothers are naturally going to take your side because of the, 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 like your blood. So guess what happens? When you work through that issue with your husband and it gets better, you don't bring that up anymore. So everything's okay in your mind at home, but the, the family of origin still has a negative view of the spouse. And because blood's thicker than water, they can't actually let it go. So they, the family now has a bad view of the husband, for basically for year after year after year, when the issue for you is resolved in six months or whatever it is. So when you go to the family of origin and gossip about your husband, 
it destroys their view of him and it's undermining his authority and it's disrespecting him. And this is the thing, this is what Proverbs warns against women and wives when they speak in these types of ways. And I don't know if I've covered the whole gamut of them, but these are just things in my preparation. Proverbs 21 says this, It's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in the corner of a roof of your house. In other words, like, it's better to be way up there by yourself in isolation than be with a quarrelsome woman in the home. Proverbs 27.15 says this, A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Nag, 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 drip, 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 insult, insult. You'll never this, you'll never amount to this. Gossip, like a dripping steady rain in the home. Setting the table for the man to fail in his role to be unconditionally loving. You see, what Peter's saying is this. Wives, don't be like that. Whether you're married to a Christian or not, if the husband is not meeting your standards within the marriage, or even God's for that matter, win him through godly conduct. Don't resort to the verbal tactics. Win him by your behavior. Now before we move on, I, I, because the platform is set for me and I don't get this opportunity to talk about this um, well, in fact, I've never been able to talk about this in five years of ministry. I want to just leave the passage and talk about other tactics that are non-verbal that women can use. Because why not? We're here. Body language. Rolling of the eyes. The shaking of the head. Manipulation tactics. The cold shoulder. Long belts of silent treatment to make sure that you know that you're upset with him. And then when he asks you what's wrong, nothing when everyone knows it's everything. Again, going back to the family of origins for input, that's especially when mom, uh, the wife goes back, to, in the early years of marriage, wife goes back to dad to ask him how to do things. Right? There's a way in which you can do that. We can talk about those things in dialogue. There's a way in which you can go back to dad for help that still respects the husband. But typically you just bypass the husband and go right to him. The misuse of finances, you have a agreed, agreed upon budget uh, and then you go sneakily behind his back even though you know the, the numbers and you start to do things your own way even though you've agreed upon this together. You go buy clothes without him knowing or things. I, I, when I was a gym trainer here, uh, I had a girl one time that paid me and she says, Andrew, uh, I'm paying you in cash so that my husband doesn't know that I'm coming here. I was like, okay, well I'll take your money but that's not good. Well, another one that's really important, overriding decisions with children. I've witnessed this. Wife says to the little Johnny, I'll use Johnny because there's no Johnnies in here. <laughs> Wife says to Johnny, uh, come here and, uh, sorry, let me phrase this. Dad says to Johnny, I'd like you to go downstairs please and get me a, oh, go clean up your toys. And then the wife interjects and goes, no, 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 Johnny, just come here. I want you to do this for me first. Or, come here, Johnny, I want a hug first, or things like that, and overrides. And next thing you know, Johnny is like stuck between two parents and ultimately comes to mom, and then dad is overridden, and he's right there in the thing. Happens all the time. Where wife, the husband will say something, the wife will override it because she sees the bigger picture, and she might be right. She actually might have a bigger picture and understand it, but there's a way in which to, to do it with, like not in front of the children for one. There's a way to get your needs met without being, doing it in front of the kids. And here's the thing, we know this, uh, you know, train up a child in the way they should go when they're older, they won't depart from it. This is not true of every, every husband, it's not true. But it is very much the norm that if a husband, a boy, especially was raised in a home with a wife's controlling, he will marry a controlling woman. Because that's all he knows. So you will marry the very thing that you know you don't like. Because that's all you know, you know how to relate to those situations. And then you're watching as parents, your son operating in this relationship going, I hate everything I'm seeing here, but the wife doesn't realize that she trained him to do that. <laughs> So these are just some ways to be 
disrespectful, and unsubmissive. So we spend a lot of time talking about what God is not looking for. So what is he looking for? Verse 3 and 4. Your adornment must not, must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You know, what Peter's doing here is not rocket science. I mean, he's simply contrasting the two ways in which a wife focuses her attention in terms of where her beauty comes from. There's the external beauty, which is our priority in verse 3, or there can be internal beauty, which is our priority in verse 4. So let me just say a couple things regarding verse 3 before we go into our main lesson. When Peter says, uh, your adornment must not be merely external, with a braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewelry or putting on dresses, um, <clears throat> he wasn't forbidding women to dress and make, make themselves look good. <laughs> He's not forbidding that, right? He's not encouraging to leave the house looking like an unmade bed, right? In my studies, I mean, this is a position that some pastors took. Believe it or not, I guess back in the like maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago in the more conservative days, some pastors actually taught this to the churches and the wives, that it was sinful and disobedient to God if they, if they you know, put on dresses and braided their hair and wore nice stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But we all, all as husbands appreciate when our wives put in the effort and time to look good. So the substantiation for why this is not, from the text, why this is not him forbidding to, for a wife to look at is in the word merely or only. Right? Your daughter must not be merely external. In other words, not only external. All he was doing is making sure that wives understood where their emphasis needed to be. It was not to be in their outward attractiveness, which women can easily get preoccupied by, but in their inward attractiveness, which is described here as the hidden person of the heart. Now, this is something that God is actually quite concerned about. See, it's not just a problem in our culture that this is the key where women focus on their outward beauty. It's a, it was a problem 3,000 years ago. There's an interesting passage in, found in Isaiah. And the context is God is warning Israel that he's going to take the whole nation out for disobedience and idolatry and all sorts of things. So the, ultimately it was because of their, their rejection of God. But he describes what the women were like in that day and what they put, where they placed their emphasis. And look at this fascinating passage from Isaiah 3. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money, purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now, it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putr putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. One of the issues in Israel was where the women were focusing their lives. They cared all about their external looks and how they appeared. And they didn't care about anything in terms of godly virtue or character in terms of the way they were related to God. Isn't that an incredible passage? So what, God, what is God looking for? What is he looking for? Well, verse 4. The hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, the hidden person of the heart, I think what Peter is referring to, is the inward nature of a woman. Her true personality. It's not visible in itself, but it's revealed through words and action of the wife which reflect her inner attitude. And the key components of this inward nature, her personality, are to be have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, the word gentle just means meek, a meek spirit, meaning not assertive, not pushy, not demanding, and quiet, a still, being still and tranquil, so having a peaceful personality. But these, these are not only attractive to a husband, these are traits that are perishable to God and are precious. God thinks incredible things about these things. They're imperishable. They're eternal in value. They, don't, they last forever. 
and they're precious in His sight. Now, just so you know how big this is to God in terms of a wife's character being this way, the, the, the one time that Peter uses precious in the Scriptures, in 1 Peter, is to describe the blood of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17 through 19, he talks about the blood of Christ being precious. And here he's saying, if you have a character like this, it's just as precious to God. Do you understand the magnitude of that? So what does he do? He uses an example. He talks about, uh, he reminds women that um, there were women like this in former days. Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened in any fear. I think it's really important that Peter uses Sarah as an example of a Christian wife who was not only submissive but exemplified his character. Why do you think I'd say that? Do you remember how Scripture records Sarah in terms of her looks? She's a smoke show. She's a knockout, to use my words. Supermodel. She's defined as being so beautiful. Abraham knew it. He was so afraid to go into other Gentile territories because he thought, these kings are going to take my wife because of her beauty. And guess what? He was right. Every time they did, they took her. Because she would go into a land and everyone would know she was there. <laughs> you know? It'd be like, uh, I mean, maybe you might not think she's good looking, but let's pretend like Julia Roberts in her heyday walked into Okotoks. Everyone would know she was here and we'd be flocking to see her at Walmart or whatever. Well, she wouldn't hang out at Walmart, but, <laughs> but you know, maybe Ginger Laurier. <laughs> right? <clears throat> I've just revealed where we shop. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like she couldn't walk into town without everybody noticing. Sarah couldn't go into town because she was so beautiful. And yet, what does Peter highlight? Not her beauty. He reminds the women here that it's the character of her he emphasized. It was her character. She didn't use her looks to uh, try to be controlling. Like the world thought she was amazing, so she thinks she would use those, when, like that, that, that estimation of the world to like usurp her authority in the home. And she doesn't. Abraham could have been, looked like a sheep for all we know. <laughs> Right? And, then he, and, she, and look what he, she does. She calls him Lord and Master and obeyed him. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to go home after day application-wise and start calling your husband as Lord and Master. Like, hey, like, hey Master, can I, uh, do you want to go for a walk tonight? Like that type of stuff. I think what he's saying here by calling him Lord and Master, it wasn't that she actually called him Lord and Master. It more reflected her attitude towards she, what she thought of him. Okay? It was a reference to her general attitude towards him, and she treated him like her lord and master. So even though she was pretty much a supermodel, her attitude towards Abraham was one of respect and submission and one of a gentle spirit. Now what's interesting, Peter says, if you follow in her footsteps, you become her children. Now I love that. I, did, I never saw this before until this week in terms of the like, like an aha moment. But remember what we're called if, we're, if we model Abraham in faith? What are Christians called? We are called, we are basically, we are blessed, we are like his children. Galatians chapter 3. If you, if you, uh, if you exemplify his faith, like he, he got righteous with God through faith, if you become righteous like Abraham through the same type of faith, you become children of God through Abraham's model. And what he's saying to a wife here is that you become a child of, of, of her, not in the area of faith, but in the, in the, in the category of being a wife. You become her children if you model the same character and follow her footsteps in terms of how to respect a husband and emulate her character. You become her children when you copy her. So some of you, uh, yeah, you might emphasize your inner beauty or your outer beauty and get fixated in that. God doesn't really care about that. Your husband does and stuff. But again, even a beautiful, beautiful wife becomes a dripping faucet when she, when she tries to control through nagging and manipulating behaviors. Beauty wanes pretty fast when that starts happening in the home. Now, that would be an incredible testimony to have to be like Sarah. But it's not an easy road, and Peter recognizes that. He says to her, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. 
You know, following Abraham wouldn't have been the easiest life to have. He asked her to do some pretty crazy, or some 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 pretty crazy things. And like, for example, I want. Uh, by the way, honey, guess what we're doing? Well, God appeared to me in a vision, and we're leaving all of our family behind, and we're going off to a land. Really? Where were we going? I don't actually know yet. What do you mean you don't know? Well, God just told me that He's got a land for me in the future, and and uh, we're going to a new home, and we're going to be blessed. But I have no idea where we're going, and we're going to leave a family of origin behind. Clearly, she obviously submitted to that leading and went with Abraham, leaving family behind. And I'm glad Peter actually doesn't record all the instances in Scripture where she would have been challenged to obey and not obey him and and to submit to him and not submit to him. Because he actually just defines her life as a pattern of this. He leaves it open-ended. This is how I define her as a pattern of life. This is who she was as a woman. She, she, her life, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, modeled this type of trust. So of course we have to, a woman as a wife, you would, there would be some fearful moments and Peter would have to encourage you by saying, don't be frightened by this. Follow in Sarah's footsteps who also might have had some fearful moments but still ultimately trusted the Lord design for marriage. Her life was one that's characterized as one who voluntarily came under her husband's authority. And Peter says, you wives, you can do the same. All right. Lessons. First one. Christian wives are to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. Where do I get that? The first three words of the passage, or four words, in the same way. In the same way what? In the same way as you do to the government, as the same way you do to the masters, in the same way. And remember in those categories, in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That's why you do it. In verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to husbands as to the Lord. It's not because your husband deserves it. To be honest with you, he probably doesn't. He probably doesn't. But God who created the institution of marriage, He does. He laid down His life for you, so you are asked to lay it down for Him. Did He deserve to die for your sins? Not at all. Did you deserve to be forgiven? Not at all. But He still did it anyway. And so out of reverence for the Lord, as wives we are to do it for His sake. That might be a clear indication. That may be a good change for you in your mindset. Why don't you respect your husband at home? Typically because you have a list of grievances against him that you don't let go. And so you're like, I, I want, you want your rights met. Shift your focus to meeting the Lord's rights and not your husband's rights. It'll change the way you view marriage. This is why I think this came right after verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in the steps. Who committed what? No sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While while suffering, he he uttered no threats, but entrusted himself to one who judges righteously. Next verse. In the same way you wives be submitted to your husbands. It's not a coincidence. It's right after that. Your husband may not deserve it. He probably is a jerk in many instances. But the Lord has modeled to you what it is to suffer in, inju- in injustice. He's modeled for you. So when, you're, when you want to like lash out at your husband, you can go to God in prayer and cry to Him. Let your tears flow out saying, I finally get it, Lord, what it was like for you to die for me. Finally get it. Because I want my rights met and they're not getting met. And now I finally get what it costs you for my life. Thomas says this, If happiness is our primary goal, we'll get a divorce as soon as happiness seems to wane. If receiving love is our primary goal, we'll dump our spouse as soon as they seem to be less attentive. But if we marry for the glory of God, to model His love and commitment to our children, and to reveal His witness to the world, divorce makes no sense. Lesson 2. 
A wife's respectful behavior is her greatest weapon in inducing change in her husband's behavior. A wife's respectful behavior is her greatest weapon in inducing change in her, wife's, in her husband's behavior. I've had many conversations like this over 10 years, like when, when wives have been in really bad situations. Like, I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my husband. And I'm like, so what are you praying for? And they're like, well, that he'll change and things, and they give me the list. And then I find out of how disrespectful they are at home, and I see it in the patterns of the relationships. <laughs> and it's, it, you see the dichotomy there and the actual incongruence of that? On one side, I'm being holy and praying for my husband, but I'm not willing to do what he asks on this side at home. So God's actually doing this in heaven. Because he's not supernaturally going to do something to your husband when you're really the answer to the prayer. Whether with an unbeliever or believer, he's saying, well, I'm not, I should replace that. He can do something supernaturally. Like, I'm not God. I don't know when he does that. But he's basically saying this. You have a role to play. You have a role to play as a wife. And you can influence change. Actually, I'm going to give you this. I love this. This is what Wayne Grudem says. The unbelieving husband sees this behavior and deep within perceives the beauty of it. Within his heart, there is a witness that this is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. He concludes, therefore, the gospel which his wife believes must be true as well. <clears throat> All right. Now again, you've got two strikes against you. You've got the fall, which intrinsically wires you not to be this way. And you have your lack of training. When none of your hands went up, you have a lack of training. So again, you have to dive into the Word of God. You have to have multiple conversations with people who have marriages that you maybe emulate or that you see respect as going, or older women that you know are respectful, and ask them, how did you work through this? What did you do? What are the processes for how to do this? But again, as wives often too, pride gets in, so we're too afraid to have conversations with people because they don't want to know our family's falling apart. <laughs> but again, we have to, if, it's like how desperate are we to make things right? But I'll give you another hint. Have a conversation with your husband. He'll tell you. If I were to ask you wives, what do you want in love? What do you, what, what's a loving husband look like? You'll tell me what you need and what you want. And, you, and so if you tell, if you, if you don't, yeah, your husband will easily tell you. He knows. But just as we're clueless in love, you're like, you know, and we have to be trained, you are the same in your respect. So you have to learn. You have to learn. And hopefully today's message in terms of the list is a learning, a start for learning. And here's a, here's a side note. Here's why, verbal, here's why verbal tactics will not work, even for you as a wife. Let's say you nag an insult and he changes. Do you know that you still won't love him anymore? If you get your husband to change through nagging, you will not love him anymore. Why? Because the only reason you changed, he changed, was not for, because you made him change. So you'll watch, so you're like, mow the lawn, mow the lawn, mow the lawn, pick up your clothes, pick up your clothes, and he, and he never does it. So finally you go and do it, and you blow up at him, and you're thinking, oh, I started, so you blow up at him, and then he goes out and does it because you blow up. All right? So he goes out, when he mows the lawn and he's done, do you feel, wow, he loves me? You don't think that at all. You're thinking, oh, I'm so frustrated because he finally did it. But it's not motivated out of a heart's desire to please you, it's because you nagged him into it. If you give him the guilt trips and he never does something, you guilt trip him into doing it and he does it, you know it's because you nagged him into it and guilt tripped him that he did it. So again, this is what's so ironic about the female brain. The, the, he says, Peter says, don't win them without a word, but the very thing as wives you want to do is use your words, but even when you use your words and he does it, you don't love him anyway and don't feel cared for. So what alternative do you have? The alternative is basically to trust the Lord and His commands. Just trust Him. He designed marriage. He knows how it works. He knows how it's designed to operate. Lesson three. For a husband to feel respected, his wife must voluntarily come underneath his leadership and authority and be gracious in the way she speaks to him. For a husband to feel respected, his wife must voluntarily come underneath his leadership and authority and be gracious in the way she speaks to him. You know, I was thinking about this. <clears throat> Do you know that our secular world outside the church demands this? 
as much as our culture is moving to a feminist kind of uh, mindset, did you know our culture demands this? Here's an illustration in point. I'm going to ask you a question. Positive or negative connotation when I use this phrase, she wears the pants in the family. Right? Secular. If, I, if, if I'm at the gym and I'm training two couples and a non-Christian wife or husband says, man, that family, she wears the pants. That's not a positive comment. See, the world outside of Christianity actually assumes that a family is to be rightly related when the man is the authority and leader in the home. It's an assumption. In fact, it's dysfunctional if it's the other way around. Forget the church. The f- that, that statement alone tells you the, the, where, what is right. God is hardwired in every family what is right in terms of our conscience, in terms of how a family should be set up. These people never went to church to actually come up with that saying. It's a massive statement then as a wife, as a Christian woman, when you say this, I'm free in Christ. I'm totally free in Christ. I'm equal to my husband in Christ, but I'm willing to come under the authority and care of my spouse. Finally, the emphasis of a Christian wife should be on her internal and not external beauty. The emphasis of a Christian wife should be on her internal and not external beauty. Can I ask you a question? Do you spend more time thinking about and worrying about how you look? Or who you are? Do you spend more hours in the week worrying about what you look like? Or who you are? Second question. Where do you spend more time working on to create change? Do you spend more time working, buying nice clothes, going for haircuts, pedicures, looking good? And I'm not saying you can't look good. We want you to look good. How much time and effort do you put into changing your character and honoring God with your, with your, with, within your family? How much study and preparation and time and energy goes into figuring out how to fix what's wrong with maybe the way you're disrespectful as a wife? See, when we read that lesson, we're like, oh yeah, I totally get it. That makes total sense, preacher brother. But in application, what does life look like? And again, I say this in love to you. I mean, you heard my sermon in Ephesians 5. I wasn't easy on the men. In fact, when a family's not going well, I actually assume the man's dysfunctional. Because when wives are like this, in the negative sense, we aren't unconditionally loving, which is which what God has told us to be. <laughs> and if any of your buttons are popping out on your chest right now because I'm talking about this, your verse is coming up soon, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. There's lots to say to the men yet. But again, being sensitive to the females and, and sort of where you're at, though, we do have to deal with the reality of God's truth. And so I hope you don't just feel convicted. I actually hope you feel encouraged to, to honor the Lord in your role.